Hello, this is Clark Carr and Clark Reads Books. Thank you for letting me read to you again from my book, Tom Fool Traveler. Here is chapter 11, Fool's Luck. From a certain humble perspective, I concede that everything is fool's luck. I grant that I have muddled along not through innate brilliance or insight, but through the grace of kismet, fortuna, serendipity. Having read these stories, if I were a gambler, I would bet that Lady Luck would abandon me sooner rather than later, and that I would disappear down a coverless manhole in the middle of some dark street. However, it's not happened yet. Or rather, I've been able to climb back out, sometimes without the applause of amused lookers-on. Mumbai. I've written up the perils of jet lag. I have certainly done my damnedest to outthink and proof myself up against travel stupor. Sometimes it's worked, more often not. One of my first truly long trips was to Mumbai, India. Only rich people can afford the straight-shot flights that cut it to a more manageable travel time. The rest of us have to go around the world via one or more other cities. The world being nicely round, you can fly via almost anywhere. I think my trip was via London. From the American Southwest, that seems to be going backwards around the planet, but there is no backwards on a sphere. In any case, I had flown to Mumbai once earlier and wound up arriving at an impossible 3 a.m. I arranged this trip to arrive in the afternoon, but it was still something like 26 hours of travel. I protected myself by putting everything important I had in my rolling computer case. Wallet, tickets, money, passport, computer, spare flash drives of my PowerPoint presentations. There was no way I could forget that on the plane. I wouldn't get through customs. Well, I did get through customs and picked up my other baggage from the impossibly overloaded luggage ramp. I had learned to have rolling everything and so was able to wrangle myself and my stuff out through the solid barrier of flesh bodies that is Mumbai. This includes the hard-learned skill to say no vigorously to the incessantly repeated taxi, sir, where to, sir, etc., you can't just ignore. You must be loud and rude. No. Otherwise, they try to grab your bag. No. I got out of the terminal. Friends and colleagues I had made on an earlier trip were there to meet me, thank God. I trundled sleepily out into the too bright Bombay sunshine, where they greeted me with cheers and waving arms and maybe even a little dancing. There were four or five of them. They all had flower lays to put around my neck which made for quite a stack. There was hugging and picture-taking, very sweet. One ran off and soon was back with our vehicle. Meanwhile, the others babbled happily at me. I surrendered control of my stuff over to them. They grabbed everything from me and packed it into the car, and then me too, like a beanbag in the back seat, crammed in amongst the rest of them. Off we drove. It was about an hour to drive into the heart of the massive city. We were 20 minutes along when I suddenly woke up. I really had turned all my bags over to them. I didn't check what got packed where. Who packed my bags, I asked stupidly. Everyone raised his hand. I started asking, the red bag? Check. The big black bag? Check. The rolling computer case? No check. My computer case on rollers, I repeated. 
silence. Everyone looked around, and there was a rapid verbal exchange in their local dialect. No one remembered packing the computer case. Stop, I ordered, and the driver pulled over. We fell out of the car and checked the trunk. No computer case. I'm screwed, I said. They looked at me, embarrassed for my rudeness and or for the ways of fate. But you have your passport, right? No. Your wallet? No. I thought it would be safer there. Your money? No. And my ticket home is there, too. You're screwed, one young Indian said. I pictured my computer case sitting there behind us on the sidewalk as we packed, and then our driving off. There sits this case with its tall, extendable handle up, ready and waiting for anyone of the zillion poor Bombayites to grab. I remembered how many were barefoot, how many had virtually no clothes or just rags, street sweepers, etc. And there is this rich Westerner's bag. It was hopeless. We were twenty minutes gone. Twenty minutes. Back in the car, ordered the head man of our little group. They stuffed me back in. He swerved the car in an impossible U-turn through the middle of highway traffic, and we raced back towards the airport. I was too depressed to listen as they tried to perk up my spirits. The trip had not even begun, and I had already blown it. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Soon we drove back up to the exact same sidewalk spot we had left. Of course, there was no bag. Of course. But we all got out anyway. My friends spread out in a posse looking for a culprit, but I was sure it was long gone. I just stood there. Then I felt someone's attention on me. I looked a few dozen feet in towards the terminal. A policeman was standing there. He was looking directly at me with a perfectly scrutable look. A disdain, a disgust, a pity. I walked over to him. You are the idiot American who left his computer case on the sidewalk. How long had he been waiting to be able to say that? That's what I remember his saying, but maybe he just said, You are the, long pause with raised eyebrows, American who left his computer on the sidewalk. And I added in idiot because that was what I certainly felt, the idiot. Yes, I sadly admitted. Then he reached behind a counter and pulled out my case. You are unbelievably lucky, sir, he said. I got down on my knees and opened the case. There was the computer, but where was the wallet and my passport? I looked up at him, eyebrows all knitted. He was waving the wallet and passport in his hand. I stood up, and he handed them to me with a look of hugely self-satisfied triumph. Go ahead, look inside, he said. I opened the wallet. No money. All my money had been there in cash. I looked back to him. He reached into his shirt and pocket and pulled out a wad. You left all your cash and your passport and your ticket home all in one place, on the curb, and drove away. He handed me the cash. Count it, he said. I don't need to count it, sir. I said, I feel so. Count it, he ordered. I counted. The money was all there, of course. Welcome to India, Mr. Nix, he said, handing me my passport. I hope the rest of your trip is equally fortunate. Yes, sir, I said. I can't.
can't believe it wasn't stolen. Look around, he said. I did. A dense crowd of poor, mostly barefoot people, many dressed only in shorts. What would it look like, he said, if one of these people grabbed your expensive computer case and started walking away with it? Yeah, it would sort of stand out, wouldn't it? Your case was perfectly safe, sir. Not all poor people are thieves. Very few of them, in fact. I was chagrined. I had assumed the first person who walked by would have grabbed the case, which would have been the case in any western city. I shook his hand, relief dripping off me like water. I offered him a reward, and he refused, but not too strongly. I got him to take something. Back in the car, the computer case now stashed sillily on my lap, held like a naughty child, one friend asked me as we drove off, How much tip did you give him? Fifty dollars, I said. Fifty dollars? American? Yes. Too much. Way too much, they said, and started arguing how much would have been more appropriate. It wasn't too much, I said. Not at all. Costa Rica. I was on the western coast of this lovely country, sharing a couple weeks with my family who had flown in from around the U.S. We were staying at an inexpensive elegantly simple hotel right on the beach, drinking, good dining, and visiting rainforests, but mostly sitting on the beach in chairs we would carry out into the shallow water to sip our drinks and watch impossibly long sunsets. It was a photographer's paradise. Periodically, I took off on solo walks to shoot flowers, bugs, bamboo palms curving gracefully down. I was on one such walk, just my camera and me in a bathing suit. I walked and walked, soon out of sight of the hotel. I couldn't get enough of the warm, humid air. I thought about taking my bathing suit off, but didn't need to go to the trouble. I was close enough to buck naked, and frankly, it felt great. As I walked along, I saw a stream ahead, running down across the sandy beach into the sea. When I got closer, I saw that it was running fairly briskly. I looked inland and saw that there were clouds over the hills not far away. This was probably about as pure spring water as one could ask for. The stream was only ten feet or so across, it seemed. The water was running fast. I could see down through the clear water. It wasn't very deep. It seemed about eight to ten inches. I took the camera off from around my neck and held it in one hand and stepped into the stream. Ooh, brisk and much colder than the air, carrying the chill down from the hills. I stepped further in. It was pulling on my ankles quite strongly, but only because it was so shallow. One step further. The stream had dug an unseen deep V trench exactly in the middle. The sandy bed of the stream was only a few inches deep for several feet, and then suddenly gave way and was bottomless or more than six feet deep, which is the same thing. My feet slid down the nearly vertical bank of this V, composed only of wet beach sand, nothing to hold. The water took my body immediately into its flow as my feet lost purchase. I was pulled down, sideways, into this rushing underwater turbulence. My thought, of course, was for the thousand-dollar camera in my hand. I held it above the water as the rest of my body sank under. 
just the camera in one hand, a few inches above the surface, the rest of me flapping around underneath. The water was remarkably clear and forceful. I was being quickly swept down towards the sea. I kicked my feet and got my head momentarily above water. Oh, shit. Not far away, the stream ran down into and across a stretch of craggy black volcanic rock. I was going to get torn up, shredded. Instantly, I went into survive mode. I had to get myself across this stream and away from the water's pull. I tried pulling with one hand, the other still holding the camera up in the air, of course. This wasn't doing the trick. I let my head get pulled under again and tried dolphining, kicking my big flat feet. This didn't do much either. What am I doing, I thought. I'm going to get all trashed and bloody. I looked at the hand holding the camera. Stupid, I thought. Not stupid that I had protected the camera. That wasn't stupid. But that I was still holding it. I quickly threw it up and onto the dry sand on the far side of the little stream. Now it was just naked nicks crossing the stream of the jungle gods, a picture out of my childhood Tarzan fantasies. Using all my arms, hands, feet, and legs, I kicked and pulled myself out of the bottomless center of the stream, a fast, invisible river flowing down the bottom of its sunken middle. I got up to where my hands and then feet could find purchase and dragged myself up onto the hot beach sand. The river stream whooshed along silently, innocently, right next to me. I'd crawled out maybe only 20 or 30 feet up from the jagged rocks over which the stream frothed and splashed. A pretty photo the rocks would have made. I don't remember laughing aloud, but I laughed in spirit. I was alive. I was very dumb, but I was alive, and not all bloodied up, which would have been most embarrassing to drag back to my family. Blood everywhere. Panic. What happened? Oh, I took a swim. But look, my camera's dry. I walked up to the camera sitting there in the hot sand. Good. The lens cap was on. The lens didn't get damaged. I didn't regret for a second doing what I had to protect it. It had a ton of great photos stored in it, after all. Some things are important. Vita breve, ars longa. Although I am sure this is not what Hippocrates meant. Or maybe he did. I continued my walk down the beach, expecting giant iguanas or great apes or something to come greet me now that the jungle had introduced itself. I did see iguanas and sloths inland later, but not here at the beach. When I walked back up the beach later, back towards my hotel, I had the same stream to cross, of course. It was even deeper and faster now. I looked inland again and now saw dark rain clouds above the hills. I tossed my camera over to the far side of the stream and then backed up and took a running dive into the stream and swam across as fast as I could. No problemo. Fool's luck indeed. I did not bother telling my brothers and sisters about this particular bit of foolishness. I never would have heard the end of it. Mostly I didn't want to defend letting myself be dragged head and shoulders under the surface while holding my camera up high and dry. It was my camera or my body. One has to make and stand by life's little choices. Mexico. In the American Southwest, more of us have Mexican cousins than not. And if you have one, you have 50. Actually, I do have about 50 Mexican cousins, all from one area, Ciudad Valles in San Luis Potosí. 
I was down there along with other U.S. relations for a big family get-together. One day, the locals got us out of the hotel and city. They drove us many miles into the countryside, got us out of the cars, and then took us on a long, incredibly gorgeous walk. This was through rolling hills alongside a gentle, blue, iridescent blue-green river. We followed a well-trodden path and came to the edge of a cliff. Nearby, we could hear that the river went over in great falls. We followed the path down the cliff, some steps carved in stone, some wooden ladders, down, down a few hundred feet to another river, this one running perpendicular to the river above, along the cliff bottom. This water was emerald gray, as though it were glacier melt. We walked up beside it to the base of the thundering falls. It was breathtaking, except that it gave us way more oxygen than it took. Most of us took a dip in the gray-green river and then hung around the falls as the sun shadows moved across the opposite canyon walls. We didn't want to leave. When would we ever come back? Finally, we climbed back up the precipitate path beside the falls. We were so oxygenated and cleansed that there was no problem to this, seemingly no effort. I had been shooting pictures of the colors, the waters, the spray, the grasses. I was humming and murmuring to myself I was having so much fun. It was a dream. I got further and further behind the others with all my stopping and shooting. At one point I saw beautiful leaf and sunlight patterns inside the forest, just off the path, and stepped in to take a few shots. Then I got back on the path and caught up with everyone else. On the way back to the hotel, in the cars, I started itching the back of my neck. A little, then a lot. It started to burn. This felt like more than a mosquito bite. I asked one of my sisters to take a look. She got in real close and said that there were two tiny, tiny puncture marks. Something had bit me. I knew exactly where it had happened. It was where I had momentarily stepped off the people path into forbidden non-people territory. I don't care how big you are, don't step into my turf, I'll bite you. And it did. So it was damn itchy. Okay, I've survived worse. We got back to the hotel and everyone began preparations for the New Year's Eve celebration to come that night. We all had brought down formal wear in order to do it up right and proper. I got duded up and joined my sprawling family in the large dining room. By this time, the itching had stopped, but my neck had started to get hot, very hot. I was sipping champagne and doing my best not to embarrass myself with my ungrammatical Spanish when my sister came around and said, Nix, what's happening? What? What? I asked. Your neck, she said. It's bright red, like rooster cockles red. And she looked closer. It's going up onto the side of your face. Jesusi Maria, get a mirror. She found a mirror in some lady's bag. I looked, and I was red all right, glowing red. I touched the skin, and it was puffy and hotter than the Dickens. But there was no pain at all. Zero. Numb. Just heat. I went over to my doctor brother and presented myself as a specimen. Oh, don't worry about it, he said casually. It's some kind of allergic reaction. But there's no pain, right? No. So have a drink. Happy New Year. I sat back down, 
remembering all too well how this older brother had enjoyed torturing me when I was a kid. I must have done something that he was never able to get even for. Over the next hour, San Luis Potosi revenge continued to creep up the side of my head and then on to my forehead, red, scarlet red, and hot and puffy, swelling gradually more and more. I guess everyone was drinking a lot because anyone in their normal mind looking at me would have started to freak out. Later, I again got a makeup mirror and checked myself out, and I did freak out. I looked like Elephant Man, I shouted. I did. The whole back and right side of my head was swollen up and red as the devil. Everyone else in their drunken state thought this was quite amusing. None of it hurt, but it was hot to the touch. What the hell? Finally, when it got to my mouth and I began to sound like Elephant Man, blubbering through swollen lips, I excused myself and returned to my room, mumbling that I wanted to go to a doctor first thing in the morning, damn it. A real doctor, I muttered grimly. That is, if I'm alive. Happy New Year, everyone was drunkenly saying. Hell with them, bah humbug. When I woke up the next morning, first I was grateful that I did wake up. Then I felt around my head. It was still there. It was still hot to the touch and puffy all over, now including one eye. I looked in the mirror. Wow. I sure as hell hoped this wasn't permanent. I was like something out of one of those 1950s nuclear radiation movies. My Mexican relatives had made an appointment with a local doctor, whom I got in to see despite its being New Year's Day. He looked at me and said, Why didn't you come last night? You're very lucky, senor. But don't worry, we have the antidote to this little demon spider. Or at least that's what I think, he said, translated through my swollen elephant ear. After the shot, the swelling rapidly reduced, and by the end of the day, I looked more or less human. My relatives had the kindness not to don in too much, their having told me not to step off the path. Nobody, in fact, had said anything about not stepping off any damn path. Besides, Demon Spider could have been waiting for me anywhere. Where is the fool's luck in this, you ask? Well, when I got home, I went to see my own doctor, as I still had just a little skin heat and funny ear. I told her what had happened. Where did it bite you, she asked. I pointed to the back right of my neck, just below my skull. Boy, are you lucky, she said. The toxin of this spider is a hundred times more potent than LSD. If it had bit you on the front of the neck, where this could have gone up into your brain instead of circling around on the scalp, you would have had one hell of a trip for about one minute before you died. Fool's luck another way. This spider, I believe, is one of those that dwell and prowl down in Australia and that could have bit me then in that tomfool morning walk I had had through the dewy grass. More evidence that the people and things of South America came originally from the South Pacific. That spider, the recluse, if that is what it was, is found only in Australia and South America. Leave it to me to hunt it down on one continent, having escaped it on another. Thank you for listening. Tom Fool Traveler is available in print or electronic editions on Amazon. If you liked this, please let others know about this podcast, Clark Reads Books. Please come back for the next installment of Tom Fool Traveler.
Chapter 12 Cardinal Rules <laughs>